0: Would you all please stand with me for the reading of God's word? All right, so we are in Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people, and Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, "All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death." except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish.
1: Good morning again, and uh, just two last things. Men's group is tomorrow night. We're reading chapters, or discussing rather, chapters 11 and 12, and then also we have a meeting for care portal directly following service. Lunch will be provided. Hope to see you at that. Um, So yeah, if it's your first time joining us, uh, welcome. Uh, We have this conviction uh, some time ago that Christians don't actually know the Bible because they don't actually read it. So uh, what we decided to do was to spend this year uh, reading the Bible for ourselves and discussing some of the major themes from the Bible on Sunday morning. So right now, uh, we're going through Esther, and we are in uh, part three of this four-part series. Uh, so it's been mentioned that this is a crazy book to find in the Bible. There's uh, no mention of Yahweh, which is the name of the God In the pages of Scripture, the Most High God, there's not the generic term for God, which is the word Elohim in Hebrew. Uh, There's no mention of Torah, which was the scriptures to the Jews, their law, their precepts. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of prayer. There's no visions. There's no prophetic denunciations or encouragements. There's no miracles. This is a secular book. There's no God in this book. And so we kind of wonder, reading this book, what is it doing in the Bible, right? So, God not being mentioned is on purpose. I just want to say that. The author purposely, purposefully leaves God out of this book. And I think the writer is trying to relate to us in such a way because. The, the book of Esther feels a lot like the days we are living in. Uh, anybody have a vision this week or a prophetic word? Did anyone go worship at the temple? Anybody, you know, experienced some radical miracle where literally the, the clouds parted, God's presence was seen, fire came out of heaven? None, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me neither. Sometimes reading the Bible, it is just so foreign to our culture, our church culture, a biblical rootedness, a biblical identity. And I think it is so similar to what these people who were living in exile experienced. God is not mentioned in this book, and it's a brilliant move by the anonymous author because the author is trying to say to us, though God is not named, though God is not seen in the way that we expect him to be seen, like he's seen in the book of Exodus or like he's seen in you know, the book of Samuel, God is clearly at work behind the scenes. The providence of God is all over this book. And Esther is a story that chronicles God's surprising preservation of his people when their very existence is threatened by a superpower. And it's not by a miracle. It's not by um, Torah-keeping, temple sacrifice. But it's a work in people. That's how God works in this book. It's through people, through everyday people. And I can't help but seeing this story as a story written for the church in this era of history. It seems to me that Esther is a story about a girl who was so very far from home. Physically, spiritually, culturally. So removed from the morality of her people, removed from an identity with the people of God who nevertheless found her way And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how God brings moments of crisis in our life in order to bring us home. So the first thing we see uh, in the the chapter that we're looking at this morning, chapter 4, I think that there is this moment that Esther comes to where she gets to choose not life or death, but she gets to choose death or death. Alright, so let's just start there. So, last week, Nikolai covered chapters 2 through 4, and he did a great job of building the tension of this story. And I just want to camp out here in chapter 4 today, because I really think that this is the climax of the story of Esther, and it's worth sitting in. So, if we've been following the story, we know that there's been an edict that has been sent out, sealed with the king's ring. Uh, In the Persian Medo-Persian Empire, laws that were put into place could not be undone. They couldn't say, oh, just kidding, never mind, stupid law, let's get rid of that. They would have to make new laws that would have to somehow combat those laws. So the law makes this king, excuse me, the law makes this king, you know what I mean. King makes this law, and it's put into motion, nothing can stop it. What is this law? That on a certain day, the Jew... Jewish population of the empire are to be wiped out. And this has been determined by Haman, this enemy of the Jews, by the rolling of the dice. Uh, in Hebrew, the word dice is Pur, and this is where the Jews begin to celebrate the Feast of Purim. It's all from this story. Anyway, that's a side note. Now, this ca- whole thing came about... Because Mordecai, the character we just read about, refused to bow to Haman. Now, we don't know exactly why Mordecai doesn't bow. Is it because he knows the ruthlessness and evil of this man and so he doesn't pay him honor? Is it simply the fact that he's a nationalist and like, I'm a Jew, I'm not bowing to you. Is it because he's loyal to Yahweh? The author is silent. We have no idea why. Whatever the nuances behind this, it sets Haman on a trajectory not only to kill Mordecai, but to wipe out all the Jews in the Persian Empire. He goes to the king, and he, you know, he spins it in such a way he doesn't really say what's going on. He's like, oh, these people are super rebellious. They're awful people. And listen, if we wipe them out, we can pour so much money into your pockets and into the treasury. The king hears it. He's like, all right, great, do it. Here's, your, here's my ring. Seals it. It's done, right? So now in response to the edict... It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. And he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in mourning clothes, no one uh, in this state could enter into the palace. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping And wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, you guys maybe were here, the first sermon we did on this, and Nikolai touched on this a little bit last week as well. Mordecai seems like he is a compromised Jew at best. And we don't really know about the other Jews living in Susa. Remember, we talked about how he has a name, uh, and his name is a derivative of Marduk, who is the Babylonian, uh, the most high Babylonian god. He works uh, in the palace. Most people don't know he's Jew, uh, Jewish at this time. He reveals that later. Um, And so... Mordecai seems like he's compromised, and we can only assume that probably a lot of the Jews living in Susa at the time were as well. They become culturally Persian. Uh, There was actually opportunity to return to the land of Israel, to go back to build the walls of Jerusalem, to build the temple. And these Jews chose not to return to their homeland. They chose to stay in Susa in a foreign land. But the point is, wherever these Jews are spiritually on the faith loyalty to Yahweh spectrum, When tragedy strikes, they turn to mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Now, of course, this is, um, this way of mourning is customary for the Jews. Uh, My wife. And um, myself, my family, actually Rick and Kevin and Cindy and Luis, we were able to go to Israel um, back in May, and you can go to the western wall there, and this is where the, the foundation stones of the second temple are still there, and there are practicing Jews that still go there. and, and mourn in this way. They're longing for the return of the glory of Israel, and you can see them with their heads covered, ashes rocking back and forth, wailing, making these noises. Actually, the place was termed the Wailing Wall uh, for some time. Apparently, that's offensive to them, so they don't call it that anymore, but that's that's what people do. They go there for this. So it's very customary for the Jews to mourn in this way. It's part of their culture. And as a whole, they are very expressive people. But the author, I I believe, uses these very specific words to describe what happened. I I think he's intentional in these words. And it's interesting because these exact words were written some 400 to 500 years earlier by the prophet Joel. Listen to this. The Lord, it says, thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, let me just give a note here. What is happening? Joel is saying Look, Israel rebelled against God. They sacrificed their children to idols. They entered into just grotesque lifestyle, murder and injustice, and they were taken away by the Assyrians. Judah, you're doing the same things. You are next. God is coming with judgment, the day of the Lord. So then listen to this. Joel says, but even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your heart and not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Exodus 34. Slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and repent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet, sound the alarm in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate The children, excuse me, consecrate the assembly, bring together the leaders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Now, as I mentioned in this scene from Joel, judgment is at the door. It's coming. Nothing can stop it. God is bringing justice upon the nation of Judah for their injustice, for their unrighteousness, for their evil. This isn't just spiritual stuff. Like people are having a good time and God hates it and he's upset about that. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible hates oppression. He hates rape. He hates injustice. He hates evil. He hates abuse. This stuff mourns him, it angers him. God desires peace, righteousness, joy, justice. These are the things the scripture says are, that are the foundation of the throne of God. And so because of the sins of the people, God is bringing judgment, but listen to that. Even at this point, he says, but if you return to me, I will return to you. Even at this state, even all the evil that you've done, even how much you've hardened your heart, even at this time, if you turn to me with fasting, weeping, and mourning, could it be that these exiled Jews are reading and applying the book of Jewel to their situation? You know, Daniel, he reads the book of Jeremiah. Have anybody noticed that? Daniel has the scroll of Jeremiah in captivity. And he's reading it, trying to figure out what God's doing. Trying to figure out what's next for the people of God. No doubt, these people had the prophets. They took them into exile. They had the Psalms. They took them into exile. Nikolai mentioned this last week. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Could it be that these Jews are reading and applying the book of Joel to their situation? Now, if, let's just say Mordecai's spiritual awakening took place when he refused to bow to Haman. Right? That's the moment in the book where he says, they're like, why aren't you bowing? You're going to get in trouble. I'm a Jew. That's all he says. I'm a Jew. This is the first time in the book where his Jewish identity is recognized by outsiders, or it's at least told to outsiders. So let's say that that is Mordecai's spiritual awakening. Then I believe that this would be his act of repentance. He awakes. To his true self, who he is. He's far away from home, spiritually, physically. And yet, here is the moment where he turns back to Yahweh, where he turns back to his roots and gets back to his heritage. We can't know for sure, but I think these three terms are used by the author intentionally to get us clued into what is really happening. A spiritual revival, repentance through fasting, weeping, and mourning. In scripture, fasting, weeping, and mourning isn't just a way to just be like, yeah, we're sad about this thing. It's, it's, it's an act, a physical act to align our bodies with what god the pain that God feels about the world. That's what fasting is. That in denying ourselves pleasures of life, like food and drink or or just simple joys, we say no to those things and we say, God, we feel the pain that you feel about the world. We feel the pain that you feel about injustice and unrighteousness, about the raping of the earth. We feel that, God, and it pains us we mourn, we understand that it was never meant to be this way, that this breaks your heart, that our lives, our personal relationships were never meant to be this way. But we are to, to, meant for community. We're meant for transparency. Remember in the garden it says that Adam and Eve, before they sinned and were removed from the presence of God, that they were naked and they were unashamed, totally vulnerable, and yet butt naked, right? Like, who, who has that? Oh, no, we hide and we, we avoid and we don't want to actually be fully known because we're afraid being fully known will be rejected, will be judged. But that is God's desire for us, that we would be fully known by him and fully loved, that we would be fully known by one another and be fully loved and accepted. I believe that this is a spiritual revival. The people enter into the heart of God, brokenness over their sin, brokenness over their state, brokenness that it's taken this long. It takes the judgment of God to wake us up. Now, Esther is clueless to what is going on. Now, I'm not blaming her. Esther lives in the palace The palace is an image of security, of comfort, of ease. Esther is removed. She is far away from the fight and from any threat or any danger of death. Right, That's the picture here. But the question is, is she? Can palace walls, can comfort and ease protect us from tragedy? So Esther gets word from Mordecai, of Mordecai's state. She hears that he's dressed this way and mourning and, and something's happening. And so she seeks more details about what's going on. So she sends, you know, a lackey, her servant, to console him, to, to, to bring him new clothes, to ease his comfort and pain. And Mordecai rejects those. And Esther's like, what's going on? It's, it's interesting to me. I don't know if Esther's never, maybe she's never seen fasting and mourning like this before. She's, what, what's happening right now? Mordecai, why are you dressed like that? Why are you so sad? What's going on? She's so removed from the situation. And so he sends word back about what's happening. So Mordecai told Esther's servant everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her, you must go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for our people. Now Esther's response is completely rational given the situation. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. Death. Now, remember in this story, there was just an assassination plot on the king. Remember that? Mordecai finds out about it. He reveals it. These two guys are impaled (laughs) for conspiring against the king. And so, I mean, maybe the situation is, okay, we're going to crack down. Haman, you're actually going to begin taking care of everything. You're going to be my vizier, and we're going to tighten up security. No one can enter the king's presence now without being called upon by the king. We are avoiding all opportunity for assassination plots. Who knows what was behind this, right? But this is the situation. Everyone knows it doesn't matter who you are. You could be, you know, the most prized and praised in the king's court, the queen herself, if you go before the king without being called, one law, put to death, unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. And it's been 30 days since I was called to go to the king. So in, in essence, this is what Esther is saying, my royal position really doesn't mean anything. If I approach the king uninvited, it could mean losing my life. Now I said, this is a choice for Esther between death and death, okay? So let's talk about that. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family, Will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Now, this, of course, as I mentioned, is the climax and turning point of this story. And the question is Will Esther join in the suffering of her people? Will she take up her true identity or insulate herself from pain, suffering, and fear? And this creates a crisis in her life. What will she do? Now, Mordecai's warning is so interesting to me. He tells her in essence, no palace walls, amount of luxury, insulation, and protection can keep you from the wave of destruction that is coming. Esther, you cannot escape this threat. And then he gives another warning. If you don't do something, you and your father's family will perish. Now, I'm going to go into the realm of sanctified imagination for a moment, okay? Which means it's not here directly in the text, but this is what I think is happening here. I think Mordecai is saying, yes, there is a real threat of death from Haman. There is a real threat of going before the king and dying, but there is a greater threat to your life, Esther. And that is this, that you and your father's house will be lost forever, What do I mean by that? The threat of a loss of identity with the people of God. There are worse things in life than death. Specifically to lose who you really are. To neglect and reject what God has made you. That he has made you for himself, for his work, for his glory. He has made you to be in relationship with him. And to lose that is to kill the image of God that is left in you. To smother it, to kill it. It is spiritual death and it is worse than physical death or danger. It reminds me of what the book of Hebrews says about Moses. Remember, Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh. He was brought in by Pharaoh's daughter, and he was a prince of Egypt. The cartoon got it right. (laughs) It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Messiah as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to the end, to his reward. What is worse than spiritual death? Excuse me. What is worse than physical death? To bury your talent in the ground, as Jesus says. To gain the whole world and yet not be rich toward God in righteousness and justice and in peace. To insulate your life from all fear, threat, and pain, and lose your own soul. Church, I think we're at a moment right now. And I think a problem in the church is that we have insulated ourselves from the threat of the world around us, from actually engaging with the culture in a, in a dynamic way bold way, I think that we are in danger of what C.S. Lewis once said. Do this, lock your heart away, protect it, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, for the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Esther, there is a wave coming and you cannot see it. And you think that this is the threat of death. There is a fate worse than death. And it is to lose your identity with the people of God. And to think that you can insulate yourself and be protected from physical death, that you can be protected from spiritual death, is a lie. Nothing can protect her from this wave that's coming. Now... People have been talking for some time about the end of the Christian era, the post-Christian era. The church will become obsolete, not by annihilation, or at least not a physical snuffing out, but by a slow burn, by being colonized more and more by the culture around us, by being numbed and desensitized To injustice, unrighteousness, lack of cohesion and peace. Having our desires and our identity shaped by the culture and not by the word of God, the spirit of God, by the vision of the kingdom of God that we find in scripture. Michael Goheen, in his book Introducing Christian Mission Today, says the church of the West often fails to live up to its high calling because it is hamstrung by a low spiritual state of the church. A lukewarm love for Christ, lackadaisical, like take it or leave it. Yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, I read spiritual books. And do Christiany type things. A sickly worldliness, man. But man, my desire is actually all over there. I'm, I'm after this thing. I'm hard after this thing. And the Jesus thing, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up with that, and I'm, I'm still, I'm still there. I'm a Christian. I'm just not really living it right now. Love that one. What the heck does that mean? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just not following him right now, is what you're saying. Say that again. I'm not a follower of Jesus. There you go. Okay. A sickly worldliness, a lack of vital prayer. And he says the reason self satisfaction that comes from comfort, compromise with capitalism, and accommodation to the consumeristic spirit of our age. And in a nutshell, We're no different than anybody else. Our desires are the same exact as our neighbors, as our co-workers. We do not desire, we do not seek the kingdom of God in the way that scripture describes. And so I think that we are at a crisis moment, similar to the threat of the people of God in the book of Esther. We are in danger of spiritual annihilation. And if it hasn't already hit, it can't be far off. So let me say just a few things, and then we'll talk about dying, (laughs) because welcome to refuge. Um, Some of you are holding on to a semblance of Christianity, but I would say mostly covered up in cultural conditioning. Some of you are like Esther in the sense that your identity with the people of God is hanging by a thread, It's only going to take one more Trump endorsement from Jerry Fowell Jr. and the Christian Conservative Party and you're done. Jerry Falwell Jr. does not speak for the kingdom of God. The Christian Conservative Party does not speak for the kingdom of God. Jesus does. The king speaks for the kingdom of God. Do not let the Conservative Christian Party take the voice away from our king. Just one more derogatory remark about sexual minorities. One more global warming denier. I'm done. Do not let those who oppress sexual minorities and other minorities speak for our king. He treats everyone the same. He welcomes all who are broken. All of them. He created this world Do not let raping of the earth, poor stewardship entitlement, do not let those people speak for the kingdom of God. I don't mean silence them, you know, in a violent way, but I mean church, rise up and speak. Speak truth. Represent the king. For others, it takes one more liberal judge or politician telling us what we can and can't say or do in the state of California. Restricted speech, religious liberty, etc. One more law. I'm going east, going to the more conservative states. This land, the earth, belongs to the Lord, in all of its fullness. And the kingdom of God must be represented to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. So whether it's liberal or it's conservative, they do not speak for the kingdom of God. And just like in the book of Esther, our God does not follow their paths or their plans. He does what he wants. It belongs to him. The course of history belongs to him but you're hanging by a thread. For others, all it takes is the right person, the right relationship, or right career opportunity to come to offer you something better, a fixed identity, something stable. Give me a vision for my life, something to really commit your life to, and you're gone. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm waiting for. Whoever you are, if you fit into these, or maybe you don't, you are one step away from your spiritual funeral. and this might be the last season of your faith if you don't choose now to rejoin the people of God to reengage with what it means to trust in Jesus alone for salvation for joy for real hope a hope that is not contingent upon policies and politicians that is not contingent upon the Christian right A hope that isn't just in a career that will end in disappointment or a relationship that will end, no matter what. Money that cannot actually meet all of your needs. It will end. It will fail you. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. He will say, it is done. And behold, I make all things new. He will sum it up. He will heal it. And he will remove all brokenness and evil out of this world. He will make all things new. That's our hope. In the kingdom of God. And some of you have lost that vision. You have lost that drive. You have lost that hope. You've lost that identity to be on God's mission to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, it might be scary as hell, but God made you for a fight. And yet we struggle for our career. We give everything for all of these other things, so much energy, so much time, so much focus. And yet the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The real fight, it's not against people, but it's against the forces of darkness that seek to lull us to sleep, that seek to draw us into apathy and spiritual lethargy while the rest of the world and the culture around us remains in the grips of slavery to sin, while the gospel is smothered in cultural conditioning. And we just see brokenness hopelessness and meaningless around us. Let me quote the great prophet Neil Young to you and preface it by saying, for the people of God, it is better to burn out than to fade away. So, are we going to die or are we going to die? That's the question. That's what Shakespeare actually meant. So choosing to die. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now Esther, and I said this in the first teaching Esther, who seems to be at best a cultural Jew and at worst a want-to-be pagan, is brought to a place of spiritual and national crisis. Let me say this. Not because she sought a spiritual awakening. Like, you know, like the Buddha. Like, you know, I'm sitting in this palace, and I feel like, man, everybody out there is suffering. And I'm, what is my life? And what's the meaning of my life? And man, you know, like this existential crisis or moment. She's not seeking it. It finds her. And she's led there by others. She didn't seek it out. But let me say this. This is a beautiful moment in the book of Esther because up to this point, and thank you, Carol, for bringing this up, maybe Esther is just put up to all this stuff. She lives in a patriarchal society where she's being forced into the harem of the king. She's being put out by Mordecai, being treated in this way. She's just going along with what everyone else is doing. And this is the first moment where Esther takes charge. She's challenged. She's called out on the mountain. and she's like, okay, you're right. This is what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden she's like, this is what you're going to do. This is what I've commanded my women to do. This is what I'm going to do. And then it says Mordecai went away and did everything Esther told him, told him to do. Yeah. All of a sudden she's taking charge, kicking butt and taking names, right? We, like Esther, need to awake to the dire situation of our own spiritual lethargy. Our own lethargic spiritual state cannot long withstand the onslaught of a godless, antichrist culture, and if we are not committed to Jesus and his kingdom, if it's not the desire behind and underneath all other desires, we're going to experience a clash of worlds and a loss of our true selves. That's what's going to happen. No person can long remain in the state of ambivalence, apathy, or complacency. Or in the words of Jesus, no one can serve two masters. So church, don't wait for the breaking point. Recognize the wave that is coming. Seek the Lord. Turn. God says, if you turn to me, I'll return to you. I will bless you. I'll pour out my spirit on you. Or in the words of Jeremiah, I will do great and mighty things that you, you can't possibly imagine. Esther recognized the serious threat of what was coming, and she enters into a three-day time period of grieving, mourning, and weeping, asking the people of God to join her. And this produces in her uh, just a transformation. Esther goes from fear to faith. A bold and renewed identity with the people of God. She goes from living in fear, blending in with the Persians, hiding her name, to boldly and cunningly facing the enemy, proclaiming her name and place among the people of God. She goes to a renewed spiritual life and an awakening really comes only by a death. And this is the pattern of God's people, laid out in Scripture, led the way by our King. Something must die in order for much fruit to come. Jesus himself says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. And, of course, we know that this is what God has ordained for the world. It is through the death of Messiah, God's anointed one, Jesus Christ, that the way is opened up for life. And I think we often forget that the way of Messiah doesn't mean Jesus died so I don't have to. That's the Sunday school answer. You know, we're like, oh, oh, my gosh, we're talking about Jesus and the cross, and the kids are freaking out. It's like, no, 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 Jesus died so you don't have to. False. The scripture never says that. Physically, it never says that in a spiritual sense either. No, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. One main message of Esther seems to be that personal renewal comes from a death to self. Seen in Esther and her calling on the people of God to fast, I said this already, but fasting, it's this putting to death desires, hunger, thirst, sleep, in order to enter into a a moment of pain, suffering, and, and a kind of death. A death to self, a death to self reliance. A death to our addiction to amusement, our death to the numbness to reality, a death to our apathy, to the decrepit state of our spiritual health. Esther goes through a kind of death. Let me paint this picture for you. Esther, the royal queen of the known world, lays aside her royal garments and takes upon herself the garments of brokenness, weeping, and mourning. She enters into the pain of her people, then courageously walks into her own potential death as her people's representative, outwits the evil ruler Haman, and saves her people from annihilation, bringing them self-defense and prosperity in the land of exile. Our way back to God, to renewal and to an identity in him, is through the Son, Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us, who went through suffering and death. Three days he was laid in the tomb without water and food. And yes, there was great weeping and mourning for him. But at the end of three days, he rose to a new creation, outwitted the serpent, triumphed over him through death, and secured blessing and hope for his people now and in the age to come. This is the pattern by which God makes us new. This is the pattern which God wakes his people out of spiritual lethargy and the potential of spiritual death. Yes, by trusting in what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, no doubt, but also by modeling that life in our own lives. Church, it is time to come home. It is time to come back to an identity with God and with his people, an identity with the mission of God, an identity with those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness an identity with those who will be put on the right hand of Messiah and be told, enter into the joy of your Lord, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me water to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And they will say, Lord, when did we see you do these things? When, When did this happen? What are you talking about? And he will say, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Church, it's time to take back up that identity. It's been robbed by so many narratives. We need to represent the true voice of the king. Let's close with two passages of scripture just to kind of drive home what we're saying here. Paul the apostle said these words, very well known by the church. I have been crucified with Messiah. It's no longer me living. It's no longer what I want to do. It's no longer about Char and his desires and his career and his greatness and his self-discovered identity. It's not about my self-enlightenment. But it's about him living in me and the life that I now live and that you now live in the flesh. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God or by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Or as Paul says in Colossians, church, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? What is the opposite of the image of God? What is is the opposite of, of what you've been purchased for and what you've been redeemed out of? Sexual immorality. God has made us for covenant relationships. To give ourselves sexually only to the one that we commit everything else to because this is how God lives. He only gives his intimacy. He only gives the self-disclosure to those who are in covenant and love and marriage and covenant is from God, not from us. It's a picture of God and his love for his people. So get rid of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. All of those things are, by the way, selfishly driven. He he says, and this is idolatry. This is what all the idols in the Old Testament, this is what they're playing on. The desire for self, for self advancement, for self protection. On account of these things, the judgment of God is coming, he says. And in these, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another because you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, and in this community, in this family, there is no borders of nationality. Everyone is equal, right? Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, because Messiah is all, and he is in all. So then put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and bear with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must do this. And above all these, put on love because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called as one unit one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Messiah dwell richly in you. Teach, admonish one another with the wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's, it's, it's simple stuff. Robert, thank you. It's simple stuff. It's these small steps that bring us back. It begins, though, with a turn, a simple turning to God and saying, Lord, I've been going my own way. God, I've been insulating myself from the reality of my own spiritual state. It's turning back to him. And God says, if you turn to me, I will turn to you. God wants our spiritual revival and renewal. He longs for that. And so turn to him. And let me just say this, for some of you, you're already doing this. Don't do this thing like, oh, oh no, like, how do I turn even more? Because I'm already, do-. you're, you're doing those things. Good, good on you. Keep doing those things. Keep following the way of Jesus. And for those of you who are not doing those things, come home. Come home. Awake to who you really are and who God has redeemed you to be. We're going to close now in a time of reflection and, and uh, we do that through the songs that we sing. We do that through uh, taking together in the body and blood of Christ because it is, we can only come home because of what Jesus has done. It's the only way we can come home and what a great way to come home. Jesus offers us himself again this morning. He says, abide in me. Take this body let it go down into you take this cup drink it down it's the cup of the new covenant in my blood come home to me make your life in me put all your desires bind them up in me that's an invitation from the lord this morning we also have um, just some people in the back that would love to pray with you if that's If your heart was being spoken to, move this morning by the Lord, they would love to pray with you and pray for you. So let's respond to the Lord. For you, if that's just getting by yourself, you want to take your communion, you want to go sit over here and have a private moment with the Lord, you need to get on your knees, you need to stand and worship, whatever you need to do, Refuge, like we're a family. Get weird, but not super weird, and we're cool, right? All right.